This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height or depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin, let's go to the Lord and ask his guidance on our teaching this morning. Father, we're thankful for your word, the fact that you revealed it to us over a period of 2,000 years in order to provide a framework for thinking and framework for living, that we might learn uh, how to have a relationship with you through the foundation of the gospel, that we must first believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And at that point, we receive new life, but we must maximize that. We must take advantage of that potential, and we must walk with you in order to experience the fullness of life which you have provided for us. Father, as we complete our study today on the Sermon of the Mount, may we be mindful that the challenge before us is a day-to-day choice. Are we going to live on the basis of our desires? Are we going to live on the basis of our ideas? Are we going to live on the basis of your revelation? Are we going to be true disciples of Jesus Christ growing to spiritual maturity? Or are we going to seek the broad way that ultimately leads to uh, misery and unhappiness in this life and ultimately a loss of rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. That's the challenge before us. And we pray that you might challenge us today as we study your word. In Christ's name, amen. Open your Bibles to Matthew 7, verse 24. Matthew seven twenty-four. And as Jesus comes to the conclusion here of the Sermon on the Mount, He focuses on the issue of volitional responsibility, taking us back to a reiteration of the first divine institution established in the Garden of Eden, that each individual is responsible for his or her life before God, that that concept of individual responsibility means that ultimately there is an an accountability for everyone before God an accountability for the unbeliever which culminates at the great white throne judgment at the end of the millennial kingdom, for church-age believers at the judgment seat of Christ, which occurs immediately following the rapture of the church, and for Old Testament saints, tribulation saints, at the judgments that come at the end of the tribulation period. But there is accountability for everyone. That accountability reinforces our decisions. Every single day, we make important decisions. Some of those decisions don't seem like they're very important. They seem rather mundane. 
Am I going to wear blue or brown? Am I going to put on boots or am I going to wear shoes? Am I going to take a shower or not take a shower? You know, some of these things may seem inconsequential. We may make a decision to go one way to work instead of another way, and then we get involved in a traffic accident, and then many things may flow out of uh, that particular situation. We never know going into certain decisions what their long-term consequences may be, what those unintended consequences may be. And so the issue that is often presented in Scripture is that we need to develop a way of thinking based upon wisdom, which in the Old Testament had the idea of skill. The Old Testament word chokmah, as we studied when we went through our study in Proverbs last year, is a word that emphasizes a skill. It can refer to the skill of a craftsman, a skill of a metal worker, a silversmith, a goldsmith, or it can refer to skill at living. And a backdrop for the Sermon on the Mount is understanding this this distinction that we see in Proverbs between the way of the wise and the way of the fool. So often, In Christianity and evangelicalism, we want to make these contrasts between salvation and the loss of salvation. But in the Old Testament, especially in Proverbs, but in many of the Psalms, they're written as if they are written to someone who is already justified, and the emphasis is now on how they should live. So when we come to the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus is giving an exposition from God's viewpoint on what righteousness is, he's not just talking about imputed righteousness. And again, I want to remind you as we close out our series on the Sermon on the Mount this morning that there are many, many people, you can read any number of commentaries that will emphasize that the issue here is imputed righteousness, not experiential righteousness. But I suggest that that's a failure to understand both the audience and the framework for the Sermon on the Mount. It's so important to understand that what Jesus is doing is he's building upon the the message that characterized the first part of, of his ministry, which was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, to unbelievers, that message of repent or change your mind emphasized trusting in him as Messiah, what we would call basic foundational justification. And justification and imputed righteousness are found in Genesis chapter 15, 6, when we're told that Abraham had already believed God and it was accounted to or imputed to him as righteousness. So it was that decision that that Abraham made long before God called him out of Ur of the Chaldees in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. It was that decision to trust God in opposition to his family. We're told uh, also in Genesis that, that he his family had worshipped the moon and the stars. So he came out of that pagan background, rejected that, trusted in the God uh, who would be the God of Israel, the creator God who made the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. And on the basis of that trust in God and his promise of salvation, which goes back to Genesis 3.15, the promise of the seed of the woman who would defeat the seed of the serpent. On the basis of that faith alone and a promise of a deliverer, the seed of the woman who would solve the problem of sin, Abraham was declared righteous. So much of what is said in the Old Testament is addressed to those who are declared righteous, but they need to learn to live in terms of what we call experiential 
righteousness. And so this is the issue. I pointed out the scriptures in Deuteronomy where uh, Moses, in his final message to the Israelites, uh, told them that there's a choice before you. There's a choice between life and death. There's a choice between uh, righteousness and unrighteousness. And if they would live in a righteous manner, obeying the law, not that they would, that wasn't the basis for getting eternal life, but on that basis they would experience the fullness and riches of life in the land that God promised uh, to Abraham. But if they were disobedient, then the result would be death. There would be divine discipline, divine judgment upon the nation, and could would ultimately culminate in their being removed from the land that, that God had given them. So the issue then is, is what kind of righteousness should the nation be uh, demonstrating for the kingdom to come in? And that is a righteousness that Jesus says is different from the righteousness that is being taught uh, by the scribes and the Pharisees. So as he comes to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, there is an emphasis on choice, the choice that each believer makes every day. Now, just one other note in terms of uh, background is when Jesus was teaching to his audience, the message was, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It was a Jewish audience they were expecting a literal physical kingdom to come on the earth with Jesus as the Messiah ruling from Jerusalem. When they rejected Jesus as Messiah, the, Jesus was crucified, buried, rose from the dead, then he ascended into heaven, then a new group of believers came into existence called the church, the body of Christ. The kingdom hasn't come up yet. The kingdom has been postponed. But in Jesus' address, in the original circumstance, the original situation where he's talking to that Jewish audience, the issue there is if the kingdom's going to come in, then this is how you should live in preparation for that kingdom. Now, there's a direct implication or application of that to the church because the church, like those Old Testament saints who originally listened to Jesus at the time of the Sermon on the Mount, the church is also awaiting the kingdom. Old Testament saints have a distinct destiny in the kingdom, but it's a destiny in the kingdom where they rule and reign over Israel. The Old Testament saints rule and reign over Israel in the coming kingdom. As church-age believers, our connection is through Jesus, for we are identified with Christ, united with him. We are the body of Christ and the bride of Christ, and we will rule and reign with Christ in the kingdom. So you have two different groups of believers with two different destinies in the kingdom, but both are expected to develop experiential righteousness in their lives so that they will be prepared for their roles and responsibilities when they come into the kingdom. Old Testament saints, the Jews originally listening to Jesus, would have one destiny, ruling and reigning over Israel. Church-age believers have another destiny, ruling and reigning with Christ over the earth during the millennial kingdom. So as Jesus comes to the concluding section of the Sermon on the Mount, he's emphasizing these choices. Which kind of righteousness are you going to have in your life? Are you pursuing a legalistic external righteousness, which is the kind of righteousness promoted and expounded upon by the Pharisees? Are you going to choose the broad gate or the narrow gate? 
The broad gate leads to destruction. That's not eternal condemnation. He's talking to his disciples as believers. And, and, and the same way the challenge to us is, are we going to live a life, but go the broad way, the way the majority of people will go, and live a life that is not the kind of life that Jesus uh, provided for us, not the abundant life, not a rich, victorious life of happiness, but a life that can be governed by misery, mediocrity, and failure spiritually. Uh, which fruit? He uses the same, similar illustration to contrast these uh, two things in verses 17 through 20, talking about a good tree which bears good fruit and a bad tree which bears bad fruit. Ultimately, he's talking about that in terms of following certain prophets. You would know whether they were a false prophet if they had bad fruit, if they taught the wrong thing. If you followed them, you would believe the wrong thing. Uh, The good fruit would be following the prophets of the Old Testament. Then we have a third option, which he concludes with in the final parable, uh, which house? Are you going to build a house, your house meaning your life, on a foundation of sand? Are you going to build the house which represents your life on a foundation of a stable rock? The difference is between security, stability, and spiritual success versus insecurity, instability, and spiritual uh, failure. One last thing, as Jesus is talking to his disciples, he is preparing them for their ministry. We will see as we come to the next chapters, Matthew organizes the material. He be- Jesus begins to travel throughout Galilee with his disciples. His disciples will be sent out uh, to the house of Israel and the house of Judah to teach and to train. So what he's doing here in talking to his disciples is training them and, and the message of the kingdom, which will be called, we'll run into this term in the next chapter, the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom is a term for that message that the kingdom is ready to come if you will accept Jesus as the Messiah. It, the gospel of the kingdom isn't quite the same as what we think of today as the gospel focusing on the gospel of justification. It was a gospel that's specifically related to that kingdom message. So as Jesus concludes in verse 24, he says, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. He's going to give us two examples here, the example of the one who builds his house on a rock and the foolish man who uh, builds his house on sand in verse 26. Uh, Verse 26 begins the same way as verse 24, but everyone who hears these sayings of mine. So what does he mean by these sayings of mine? Uh, understanding that helps us to understand what the rock is. The rock is the sayings of Jesus. The word sayings is our word logos. In the singular, it means a a word. Uh, it can refer to many different things. Logos is one of those words that has a wide range of meanings. It can mean word, sayings, teachings, instructions, uh, could even mean doctrine because that's a word that means instruction or message. It can mean the study of something. It's used to refer to many different things, but here it refers to a, a, a message or the instructions uh, of Jesus. And so it's a plural. So we would say whoever hears these, 
near demonstrative. That is a reference to what Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Specifically, that's its original contextual meaning. But by implication, it means all of Scripture, the entire realm of Bible doctrine, everything that Scripture says related to every issue in life. And it's not just the sayings of Jesus. Everything in the Bible, from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, relates to the sayings of Jesus. One of the great problems or errors that has occurred in publishing of Bibles is those who um, have published a red-letter Bible, distinguishing the words of Jesus in the Gospels from all the other words in the Bible, as if those words were special, were distinct, were categorically different from the rest of Scripture. But Scripture says, for 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, that all Scripture is breathed out by God. All of those genealogies in, first, in Second Chronicles, those are all just as inspired, just as important uh, at, as the sayings of Jesus in the Gospels. They're all equally from the mind of God. They're equally significant, but they're not of, of the same uh, application to to us as church-age believers. So there's a difference in the degree of relevance, but they're all equally inspired and equally authoritative and equally without error. All Scripture is breathed out by God, not just the words uh, of, of Jesus. And so when we look at the Sermon on the Mount, we need to understand a couple of other things about Jesus teaching as he brings this to a conclusion. He's talking about, at the end here, about his sayings. Whoever hears these sayings of mine, it should produce a result. It's going to produce one of two responses. You're either going to believe it and apply it, or you're not going to believe it and you won't apply it. What we learn from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5.17 is that the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, fulfills the law. He said, I didn't come to destroy, I came to fulfill the law. He fulfilled the law in his life, but he fulfilled the law also in the way he taught the people to obey the law. So that the instruction of Jesus is the divine interpretation of Torah and the righteous requirement of Torah, not just for justification, but also for sanctification. We also see that the words of the of Jesus are equated to the will of the Father. This is a very important point. I didn't emphasize this last time. We see it in Matthew seven twenty one to twenty three, the section I looked at last time. And there at the end of verse twenty one, Jesus Jesus says, But he who does the will of my Father in heaven. So he says, Whoever says to me, Lord, Lord, will will Enter the, uh, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. But then when we look at verses 22 and 23, we see that uh, the issue is related to the Lord himself. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, we have not prophesied, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your, your name? In other words, the will of the Father in those verses is equated to the teaching of Jesus. So what Jesus teaches is the will of the Father. They're identical in those verses. So that in concluding this little summary, the instruction of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is 
identical with wisdom, using that Old Testament category. It is identical with wisdom, and it's contrasted with the foolishness, the folly of the pharisaical way of thinking. Religious legalism may sound good. It may impose a moral order upon people that that is in some way productive, but it is foolishness. It leads to failure in life because it is not the kind of righteousness that God expects. Now, this is something we see and we saw in Proverbs. Look at the contrast from some of these Proverbs I'm putting up on the screen. In Proverbs, there's a contrast between the way of the wise and the way of the fool. The way of the wise, it is, the wise person is assumed to be a believer, and this is how they should live. The f- person who is a fool it's not assumed that he's an unbeliever. It's just assumed that he's not applying the, the, the principles of God's word in his life. So in Proverbs 1.7, we see the contrast. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Elsewhere, we see it's wisdom. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. So when Jesus is teaching, when he comes to this final parable, it fits within this whole uh, context of Old Testament thought contrasting the fool and the wise person. Proverbs 3:21 and 22. The writer of Proverbs says, "My son, let them not depart from your eyes." That is these sayings, uh, "Let them not depart from your eyes. Keep sound wisdom and discretion." So what's the end result of keeping wisdom and discretion? So they will be life to your soul and grace to your neck. So he's not talking about eternal life here. He's talking about having a rich, full life, experiencing the fullness of God's blessing in our life here and now. It's not eschatological. It's not talking about what happened, life after death. It's talking about the fullness of life right now. We see the same thing in Proverbs 4.4 4 and Proverbs 9.11. In Proverbs 4.4, we read, He also taught and said to me, Let your heart retain my words. That's the path of wisdom. Keep my commands and live. Wisdom leads to life today. For by me, in Proverbs 9.11, it says, For by, by me, by wisdom, wisdom's personified in that chapter, for by me your days will be multiplied and years of life will be added to you. See, the promise for the believer is not just eternal life that when we die we go to heaven, but Jesus said, I not only came to give life, but to give it abundantly. It's that richness and fullness of life where despite our circumstances, we can have joy and happiness stability and security even when everything around us is crashing down. Now, we need to learn that today. We need to learn it today probably more than any generation in the United States has ever learned it because there are things that are going on in this world internationally in foreign affairs that may bring us to the verge of of, uh, another world war very shortly with the rise of ISIS, this um, Islamic uh, state of Syria and Iraq that's in, um, or Iraq and Syria rather, that's, that's capturing these large amounts of territory in what used to be known as Syria and what used to be known as Iraq. And just as a side note, uh, those borders, those nations will never exist again. They're gone. The borders between Lebanon and Syria, the borders between Syria and uh, what used to be Iraq, those were somewhat artificial that came out of, once again, this, the San Remo resolutions we've studied before in relation to Israel. That's when those borders were established. They didn't take into account 
the uh, tribal differences and and the differences between Shia and Sunni and all of these different things. And now those borders that were established by international law at San Remo are falling apart with the rise of this uh, horrible, brutal, thuggish group of, of radical Islamists who want to establish a caliphate. It will never go back. But what the unintended consequences may be, from what they are doing, it, we, we can't foresee. But then when we combine that with what's been happening on the border, with the huge number of uh, illegals coming across the border, children, along with them, there are many uh, members of Hezbollah. There are many members uh, who are radical Islamists. And uh, from contacts I've had w- with people in law enforcement, uh, there, even, even if only 10% of those who have come into the U.S., and stayed illegally, whether they came across a border or whether they came in on student visas, if only 10% uh, remain radicalized, if 90% become Americanized, 10% are radicalized, we probably still have between 200 and 500,000 radical Islamists who are on a mission in this country. One day we're going to pay for all of this, and something terrible is going to happen. And, and you and I as believers who have the word of God in our soul are the only ones who are going to really be able to provide stability in the midst of crisis and because our focus is on something greater than, than current circumstances. So that, that will come only from wisdom. Proverbs 10, 31 and 32, the, uh, the writer of Proverbs says, The mouth of the righteous brings forth wisdom, but the perverse tongue will be cut out. The lips of the righteous knows what is acceptable, but the mouth of the wicked what is perverse. Again, that contrast between the wicked and the righteous. And it's not a contrast between believer and unbeliever. It's a contrast between those who are following divine viewpoint and those who are not assuming that, that they're believers. Because a challenge in Proverbs is to, from a father to a son who's a believer to live and to live his life on the path of, of, of wisdom. In Proverbs 25, or 24, 3 and 4, uh, the writer of Proverbs uses this house-building imagery just as Jesus does. Through wisdom, a house is built, and by understanding, it is established. By knowledge, the rooms are filled with all pres- precious and pleasant riches. This is the same idea Jesus is talking about in Matthew that um, someone comes, uh, he says, whoever hears the sayings of mine and does them, I will liken them to a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rock, although in other places the term rock refers to, to Jesus as the cornerstone, in context Jesus is saying that the rock are his sayings. If you build your life on what Jesus has taught in the Sermon on the Mount, then it will survive judgment. Now, I'll get into why I say that in a minute. This isn't talking about surviving adversity. As we saw in the preceding contrast, uh, Jesus is talking about the, those who are the, the claiming to be uh, casting out demons, claiming these various signs and miracles because of their relationship, and then Jesus says, Depart from me, for I never knew you. That's at the judgment seat of Christ, as I pointed out last time. As as he begins this section in verse 13 with the contrast between the narrow way and the broad way, that's talking about judgment in time. The narrow way leads to life. The wide way leads to uh, destruction in this life. 
Uh, then in the next section, it appears again, the contrast, the fruits in this life, judgment in this life, being thrown, the tree that's thrown into the fire is not talking about eternal condemnation. That's talking about the destruction in this life. But then there's a shift. It not only applies if you make the wrong choices, not only leads to destruction at this life, but to loss at the judgment seat of Christ. That was the focus in verses 21 to 23, and that's the focus here. Sure, there's a truth there that you could apply it and say, oh, well, if, if the rock is a is the saying of Jesus, then what? and you build on that rock, then you'll be able to survive adversity. That's true. That's not what he's talking about. That's not the context here. The context here is really talking about coming to that point of judgment that, uh, that concludes life. The one who will survive at the judgment seat of Christ with rewards is the one who has built his house, his life, on the instruction of Jesus, the divine viewpoint of Scripture, And the one who will suffer loss at the judgment seat of Christ is the one who builds his life uh, on his own thinking, uh, which is illustrated by sand, verse, uh, verse 26. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them, you reject them. Well, if those sayings are related to that practical experiential righteousness, and this is a person who ignores that, has no experiential righteousness at the judgment seat of Christ. So as we saw last time in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, what this means in verses uh, 12 through uh, 15 is that their, their works are destroyed, their wood, hay, and straw, but they will be saved yet as through fire. They are still saved. They just have no rewards to show for it. It's a wasted life spiritually. So this is the illustration that Jesus gives. And then he concludes this in 7, 28, and 29, or Matthew concludes it, giving his editorial observation. He says, and so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings, this teaching, that the people were astonished at his teaching. So what we see here is there's, he's setting up a transition. The words of Jesus have authority. The teaching of Jesus was unlike anything they had heard from the rabbis. Rabbinical teaching uh, was a teaching based on the authority of other scholars. And so in the writings of the rabbis, as they're uh, explaining Scripture, they'll say, well, Rabbi uh, Joseph said this, and Rabbi Simon said this, and Rabbi Eliezer said this, and so it's much like what's happened in modern scholarship. We've gone all the way around. Now we talk about, well, pastor so-and-so said this, pastor so-and-so said this, doctor so-and-so said that, and modern scholarship thinks that you're a scholar if you know all the different views and can explain the strengths and weaknesses in every view, but you can't come to dogmatic conclusions. In fact, if you come to dogmatic conclusions, you're, you're wrong. That's not scholarship. Uh, so they completely redefined scholarship from what it was 40 or 50 years ago. 40 or 50 years ago, men at Dallas Seminary like John Walbert, uh, Dwight Pentecost, Charles Ryrie, uh, Stan Toussaint, Bob Leitner, these were men who a couple of them had doctorates from other schools, but they had their uh, doctorates from Dallas Seminary when it wasn't accredited. And so according to the accrediting agencies that came in that Dallas continually went to through the, through the 90s, uh, they began to say, you can't teach. You may, you may be able to read the Greek New Testament backwards and forwards, 
but you don't have an accredited Ph.D. in Greek, so you can't teach in the doctoral program. They said that to Dr. Leitner. He had been teaching in the Ph.D. program at Dallas for like 30 years, and he was no longer qualified. He's not a scholar because his Ph.D. wasn't from an accredited school in the field in which he taught. See, we've come back to this pharisaical approach, and what Jesus did was he taught what the word said and what the word meant. He wasn't concerned with the different viewpoints and the different human authorities because they were wrong. He was giving a literal interpretation and application of the text, and this is what set him apart from all of the other uh, pastors, our rabbis, and teachers of that particular time. He taught, verse 29, as one having authority and not as the scribes. And so we see that his teaching, the words of Jesus, demonstrated his authority. Now what we'll see next time in the next uh, chapters, in chapters 8 through 10, where we look at the miracles, the signs and wonders uh, that uh, Jesus performs, is that the works of Jesus demonstrate his authority. So Matthew's building a case that Jesus fulfills the promises and prophecies of the Messiah, and he demonstrates that he's the Messiah by the way in which he teaches, by his words, and by what he does, by his works. But the challenge for us from the Sermon on the Mount is what are we going to do? What's the action plan for us? Which path are we going to take? Uh, which fruit do we want to see produced in our lives? Which house are we going to imitate with the way in which we build our lives? Are we going to build our lives on the wisdom of the Old Testament where God the Holy Spirit is producing righteousness in our lives and the fruit of the Spirit in our lives? Or are we going to pursue our lives on our own terms and only obeying Scripture, only following the priorities of Scripture when it's convenient for us or when it conforms to our preconceived notions, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we're thankful for this time to study your word, be focused upon the challenge that you have given us in the Sermon on the Mount, that we not only have to have imputed righteousness but also experiential righteousness a righteousness that will be the basis for our rewards at the judgment seat of Christ and a righteousness that will uh, be on display for eternity to glorify you, not to bring glory to ourselves. A righteousness that gives us the capacity to be able to rule and reign wisely with the Lord Jesus Christ during the millennial kingdom. Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with these things. We pray for those who may be listening to this message, who are maybe uh, uncertain about their salvation or their eternal destiny, that they would clearly understand that salvation is not based on works. It's not based on what we do. It's based upon what Christ did on the cross, that there he paid the penalty for our sin, that by our faith in him, we recognize he paid the penalty for our sin, trusting in him and him alone, we have eternal life. We have eternal life because you give us his righteousness, and on the basis of his righteousness, not our righteousness, on the basis of his righteousness, we're declared just and righteous. And so we have eternal life, not because of who and what we are, but because of who you are and what Christ did on the cross. 
and we pray that you would drive home the principles that we've studied and make them very clear to us under the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.